a lot of my patients tell me that they get most of their information online about birth control. So I think the media is really important in informing patients. However, I'm concerned about the recent messages, particularly around the election, regarding IUDs and implants. That's Dr. Kristen Brandy, an OBGYN and fellow of family planning at Boston Medical Center. She's talking about contraceptive implants and intrauterine devices, or IUDs, which are long-acting reversible contraceptives, commonly called LARCs. Dr. Brandy has been researching how and why people make decisions around contraceptives. I think it's wonderful that people are trying to find out more about different types of birth control, particularly the IUDs and implants, because they don't get a lot of press. Um, But messages I've heard after the election were that everyone should go get an IUD because they're concerned that they're going to lose their coverage. Um, And I think that's really problematic. Following the election of President Donald Trump, the Internet was abuzz with calls for women to get an IUD now before they lose their contraceptive coverage. And publications picked up on this. Bust published an article titled, Six Reasons You Should Get an IUD Before January 20th, 2017. New York Magazine published an article, Here's Why Everyone is Saying to Get an IUD Today. And there are countless other articles like that. While birth control availability could be limited during a Trump presidency, Dr. Brandy warns against this one-size-fits-all rhetoric when it comes to contraception. I think the idea that everyone should get IUDs as a protective measure from a political system or a system of healthcare that may not have coverage in the future is really scary. For one, women that get IUDs placed and they don't have contraceptive coverage after that happens, eventually a doctor will have to take that out. Um, And if they don't have coverage to get it removed, then you're putting them in a position where they might want to get pregnant and can't because they have an IUD in, or they don't like the side effects of an IUD and want it removed but don't have access. And so that puts people in a very coercive situation um, where they're stuck with this IUD. Um, I think the other thing that's problematic with that is that it assumes that IUDs are it. That's the only method that will protect people. Um, And I totally recognize the fact that people may not have coverage to get birth control pills or the ring or the patch. Um, But if that's the best method for them, then I worry about them switching to a method that they'd like less or they may not use um, as well just because they're worried about their coverage. Really, these decisions should be made between doctors and women. And so we can try to figure out the problems with the healthcare system, but we shouldn't use IUDs as a shield to protect us from the healthcare system. Uh, Some people say it was, you know, part of eugenics. Uh, We say it was genocide. I was outraged that this doctor decided for me that I was okay with not having the ability to have any future children. They were targeted. Women were used in the trial because they were poor women. All the simple stuff has been done a long time ago. There are no simple answers now. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless, The Backstory. Four weeks, four stories of unethical medical research, coercion, and injustices in healthcare that have led us to where we are today. Because pro-choice is a meaningless phrase when we assume that all choices are created equal.
Today we hear from Loretta Ross, writer, activist, and leader in human rights. In 1994, she helped create the term reproductive justice and its framework to challenge the singular focus on abortion and contraception in the pro-choice movement. As we've been covering in this series, many women, particularly poor women, women of color, and women with disabilities, have often had to fight not only for the right to choose when to have children, but for the right to have children at all. And Loretta's own multitude of reproductive experiences steered her toward a life of activism. Here's Loretta's story. The one full birth that I had, I got pregnant at 14 through rape and incest, and so I had that child at 15, uh, and I had no choice about whether to have that child because this was pre-world days. It was 1969. And the only choice I had in that situation was whether to keep my child. I had actually thought I was going to give him up for adoption because obviously nobody wants to co-parent with a rapist. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, had not imagined a future that that would be my pathway to motherhood. <laughs> I was at a Catholic hospital after having been stuck in this home for unwed mothers run by the Salvation Army. And for some reason, the nurses bought my son to me the morning after delivery when they weren't supposed to because the children's schedules for adoption were supposed to be just whisked away. And when they bought him to me, I mean, it rocked my world. And I couldn't do it because it just, I kept saying, he's got my face, he's got my face, he's got my face. And so I'm not sure if they did that accidentally or if they did it on purpose. But what I do know is that for the next 47 years, I ended up co-parenting with my rapist. Loretta attended Howard University early, at age 16, to study chemistry. All students under 18 needed written parental consent to access birth control, and her mother, who she describes as a fundamentalist Christian, wouldn't sign her birth control permission slip. She, of course, saw sex and sexuality as sins, and since I'd already had a baby, she thought that I should never have sex again until I got married. And guess what happened? Freshman year, 1,000 miles away from home, I got a new boyfriend, and that was my first time engaging in voluntary sex, so that was pretty special to me. And we only had sex three times, and I ended up pregnant again. And I was kind of frustrated, because I'm like, I haven't even gotten to the point where sex doesn't hurt, and I'm already pregnant for a second time? <laughs> This just didn't seem fair. This wasn't what the romantic novel said it was going to be like. Um, and fortunately for me, because it was in Washington, D.C., D.C. legalized abortion three years before Roe v. Wade. And so I was able to seek out a totally legal, totally safe abortion at Washington Hospital Center, and my law school-headed boyfriend was very eager to pay for it, so it was not an even a matter of the cost or anything like that. But again, I needed parental consent. And so my mother really refused to sign the permission slip for me to have an abortion. And basically, she told me, well, if you're pregnant again, just come on home, drop out of school, come on home and raise your kids. 
I could kind of see why she said that because my mother had two children at 16. And here I am, 16, faced with two kids. So that's what she knew. Except that I wasn't going for that deal. And so it took a long time of arguing with her. And finally, my older sister, who's nine years older than me, Carol, just literally forged my mother's signature to the slip. I never had any regret at all. I I searched my soul to see if I regret that decision. Not at all. And so it was my attempt to try to prevent future pregnancies that I accepted implantation of the Dalcon Shield. The Dalcon Shield was an IUD that was developed by the Dalcon Corporation and marketed by A.H. Robbins Company starting in 1971 in the United States and Puerto Rico. It was first promoted as a safer alternative to birth control pills because at the time there were concerns that the pill caused blood clots and increased cancer risk. The Dalkin Shield had a unique shape that made it difficult to take out, so it had multi-filament strings for easier removal. Loretta said getting the Dalkin Shield inserted was relatively painless and at first she didn't notice any problems. But a few months in, she started experiencing extreme pain. And I kept going to the doctor. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to use my private OBGYN, which I had been with ever since my days at Howard University. He was a Howard graduate and everything. But I had gotten a job with an HMO. And so they forced me to use their system. And my doctor, through the HMO, was head of OBGYN at George Washington University Hospital. So I actually kind of thought I was in good hands. But it turns out that he had all kinds of racist and sexist stereotypes about me uh, because I'd already had a baby. When I started developing the infection, he assumed and literally told me that I had some rare venereal disease that the GIs from Vietnam had brought back to the United States. And he kept treating me for an STD when I had acute PID. And that went on for six months. And my, I was in extreme pain. My stomach was getting distended. And at no point did he remove the IUD. I was naive enough to trust the doctor. I mean, I actually believed his stereotype about me. But I kept saying, I don't know any GIs. How can I get something from a GI? I don't know any GIs. I'm not having sex with any GIs. And so, you know, I... Take, he'd, he'd prescribe something else, and I'd take that for a month and then come back. It wasn't working, so he'd prescribe something else and something else and something else. So we kept trying these different regimens, but never did he consider removing the source of the infection in the first place. And so uh, actually my boyfriend then was a medical doc, was a medical student, and he's the one that recommended that, Loretta, you really need to go see what else is going on with this because this doesn't sound right. And I said, okay, I'll make an appointment next week and I'll go again. Well, before I could get to that appointment, I passed out in my uh, apartment one day. And fortunately, Eric, my boyfriend, was there when it happened. So he called an ambulance for me and they took me unconscious to the hospital. And when I woke up, I'd had a complete hysterectomy because I wasn't even conscious to sign the permission slip. And so the next morning after they do this, uh, what they call a total hysterectomy, they actually did a subtotal and then they came back and removed even my remaining 
um, ovary. And after he did it, the doctor comes in the room next to Oh, aren't you a lucky girl? I caught that. Da, 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 da. Aren't you lucky you already got kids? And I was bewildered. I said, are you telling me I can't have any more kids? He said, no, we had to do a hysterectomy on you to save your life. And at first, again, I was grateful because I thought he had saved my life. But Eric told me, he said, something's not right about this. Something's not right. And so based on his urging, back then you could actually get copies of your medical records. So I got a copy of my medical records from uh George Washington University Hospital, took him to my former OBGYN who was practicing at Howard University Hospital. And my former OBGYN took one look and said, the first thing he should have done was remove that uh, Dalcon shield. There's so much medical literature now showing that that wick, that, that filament is dangerous. This was in 1974. By that time, more than 2 million women were using the Dalkin Shield IUD, and reports were surfacing about the increased instances of pelvic infections and septic abortions among those who'd had the Dalkin Shield inserted. That summer, the medical director at A.H. Robbins published a letter to the editor of the British Medical Journal that said that while the company was aware of the increase in septic abortions and four fatalities among users, they didn't see evidence of a direct causal link between these cases and the Dalkin Shield. But medical journals were already publishing articles saying that the porous multifilament string that made the Dalkin shield easier to remove appeared to allow for bacteria to travel up into the uterus. I was angry. I was angry. And I think the thing I was most conscious of was that I had lost my chance to be voluntarily pregnant. Yeah, because I really had the experience of parenting in all the worst ways with that but I was looking forward to getting married and seeing what voluntary pregnancy looked like like I said I had a whole discovery of what voluntary sex felt like so I really wanted to do the whole thing and so I was most conscious of a sense of loss Um, and then I got enraged as he started delving into the medical records and telling me all the missteps that this head of OBGYN had done. And then he was the one, he said, he just assumed because you were black and poor and you were already a a mother that he did not have to provide you quality care. And so based upon that, I sought out a lawyer and we ended up suing A.H. Robbins, the maker of the Dalcon Shield, and folded in the doctor. Loretta was one of the first to sue A.H. Robbins for complications caused by the Dalkin Shield. I hired this lawyer who counseled me to settle because he basically told me, he said, because you're already a teen mother, they're probably not going to give you a lot of money anyway. Of course, I found out that that was his racism and sexism on my story because the settlements that happened after me were multi-million dollar settlements and I got a whole lot less than that because I was being urged to settle by him. But he was creating a body of cases where he could become one of the class action lawyers. About 200,000 women sued A.H. Robbins in a class action lawsuit claiming that the Dalkin Shield caused physical injuries, 
miscarriages, infections, and emergency hysterectomies. Collectively, they won about $2.4 million, and A.H. Robbins had to file for bankruptcy. At least 18 women in the United States died from complications likely caused by the Dalkin Shield, and many others were left permanently sterilized. That was my entree into even thinking about reproductive rights activism, because we hadn't created the term reproductive justice then. But I was outraged that this doctor decided for me that I was okay with not having the ability to have any future children. And he didn't know anything about my story. Loretta's experience with the Dalkin Shield and her subsequent unauthorized sterilization procedure began her journey into reproductive rights activism. So she was surprised to find out that long after the device was deemed unsafe for American women, the United States Agency for International Development had been sending the device overseas for use by women in low-income nations. I went to South Africa, and I got there and found that the Dalcon shields that they had been prohibited for distributing in the United States were being dumped in South Africa. And the women in South Africa were, were offered the worst deal, either control your fertility or we will not employ you. And so they were risking their own sterilization in order to get employed under an apartheid government. And jobs are, of course, scarce and minimalist. And, and marginalized back then. And that's when I really got mad because after I'd been sterilized, sterilized for A.H. Robbins through a bankruptcy reorganization, still able to promote a defective product around the world. I mean, that should have been illegal. It was already immoral, but it definitely should have been illegal. But it wasn't. During a 1978 Congressional Committee hearing on whether contraceptives deemed unfit for Americans should be promoted abroad, representatives from pharmaceutical companies, USAID, and private population control agencies presented what they called a humanitarian argument that the risk of dying in childbirth was greater for women in poor countries than the risk posed to them by these dangerous contraceptive methods. But the pharmaceutical companies had money to be made in these contraceptive dumps, and the U.S. government was still promoting eugenics population control policies abroad. The Dalkin Shield was dumped in more than 40 countries around the world. Only one set of instructions and 100 applicators accompanied a box of 1,000 unsterilized devices, rather than the standard in the United States to have one applicator per sterilized device. Many of the women receiving these IUDs lived in places with limited access to health care, so if they did develop an infection, they were at a much higher risk of death. It's estimated that hundreds, if not thousands, of women around the world died from the Dalkin Shield IUD. I talked to a lot of South African feminists, and they said they were, they were offered the devil's bargain. And you're dealing with black women who are already marginalized and pushed out of the economy, and who are told that if they're at risk of getting pregnant, then they will not be employed. Well, you're choosing between possible risk to your fertility and feeding your children. What kind of choice is that? At the same time, I was having these really contentious conversations with members of the family planning movement that literally were saying, well, the risk of sterilization is so much less than the risk of having an unsafe pregnancy. 
And so we don't actually see a problem with this. And so, and these are supposed to be the people on our side. That's when I started taking a very critical look at reproductive technologies, because it wasn't just about the Dow Con Shield, but that body of ideas, that ideology is, that is persuaded that women don't have the right to remain reproductively fertile under their own control that's happening on our side really bothered me. Women do need reproductive options. They do need birth control options, but they also need the full information about the risk and benefits of these options. And distributing birth control drugs and devices in the context of where people lack even access to basic health care is a form of population control. And why they think that what worked in the United States is not applicable globally is, again, part of imperialism and racism and all the jargon that we talk about. I still offer a critical idea of LARCs, the long-acting reversible contraceptives, because with the attacks on the Affordable Care Act, we have more women turning towards long-term uh, uh, contraceptives like LARCs and all of that because they're afraid that their other methods will not be covered any longer if the ACA is repealed. So if you create coercive conditions, then women are going to make the most rational decisions they can make within those conditions. And I'm not into criticizing their decisions. I'm into criticizing the conditions that produce those decisions. The Dalkin Shield gave IUDs a bad reputation for years, but a lot of that damage is starting to be undone. Larks have become increasingly more popular over the last decade, and IUDs are much safer than the Dalkin Shield was. They're made with a monofilament string that drastically reduces the risk of infection. But medical decisions are supposed to be made based on what's best for a patient's health. And there will always be some level of coercion involved in a medical decision made to protect oneself from a political system. Loretta Ross is still very active in the reproductive justice movement. Her new book, Reproductive Justice, An Introduction, which she co-wrote with Ricky Solinger, is available now through University of California Press and wherever books are sold. Choiceless, The Backstory, is produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Fletty, our director of multimedia and executive producer. Cynthia Greenlee is a senior editor at Rewire, and she's a story consultant and contributor to this series. Laura Huss provided research and fact-checking. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for Choiceless is by Doug Helsel. Thank you to all the staff at Rewire, especially Rachel Perone, Lauren Gutierrez, and Stacey Burns, our communications and social media team, for getting the word out about Choiceless. Tune in next week to hear more on sterilization abuse in the United States. Thanks for listening.